I'm Kieran Gillen, writer of all the comics in the world, including Eternals, Wicked Divine, Die, and so on. And you're listening to Smaller Country. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John, and Henrik, and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. All right. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm kidding. It's just me today. That's it. That's all you get. No, I'm kidding. Today on the show, what's well, Karen Gillian, isn't it? And he comes on, has a wonderful conversation with Mr. Haas. Um, you heard in the bumper, he's the writer of all the comics. <laughs> so I'm excited to get into this because I have not listened to this interview yet. And so I'm going to sit back, relax. And listen to Karen Gillen in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic writer, Mr. Karen Gillen. How's it going, sir? I feel very complimented. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Uh, It's a great pleasure to talk to you. You are a phenomenal writer. Please, <laughs> you're blushing, mate. Thank you so much. That, that's it's a lot. It's been a, a very quiet Saturday, but that's a lovely thing for anyone to say to me. Thank you. Oh, it's no problem. I mean, sometimes I have to lie, but at this moment, definitely don't have to. <laughs> well, I, if you were lying, I would also appreciate that too. That's polite. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I'm talking to a writer that's as renowned as you are, well, the first thing I always ask is, why do you love comic books? Where did this start for you? Wow, it's like. Um, I sort of immediately pause because it's like it's, it's one of those questions that's really simple but it's also really big like i read comics as a kid like a you know a proper sort of preteen sort of kid so it's in britain it was also a very different sort of culture anyway and growing up in this sort of small town called stafford there was like no access really to like teenager comics or adult comics when i was a teenager so i sort of drifted away uh like i was aware and, and comics curious but it's only really in my 20s when i came back like i basically picked up watchman i knew that i should have read watchman it's that kind of like having read the music press and the games press it's like i wasn't it's not like i wasn't aware of it but it's that that on the long list of books i should have and i just saw it one day when i was waiting to get a visa for america I was basically working in America as part of my degree. And I picked it up and like read it from cover to cover in the Oxford Street McDonald's whilst waiting to get in to the, the embassy. And basically that was kind of it. Like, cause I went to America, I spent like a month without the television, without any books, which weren't incredibly depressing, existentialist philosophy <laughs> stuff. And yeah. like Watchmen. So I read Watchmen like 8 million times in that month. And that kind of real, <laughs> you know what I mean? That real deep dive into it made me think, oh yeah. my, this is, a, this is a new medium. This is a really exciting medium. And like, I turned that like a one or two uh, trade a year sort of person because a, a friend in America introduced me to a lot of Vertigo and a lot of other kind of books from that mm-hmm. period. 
and and then I kind of just fell in hard when I was like 25 it was just kind of like it was on the uh, I discovered like internet comics culture and similar stuff there and then I just sort of started working on zines and like there but it was just like I was just quite a bit like imagine if like, you never listened to music Mm. Like, yeah, like you, you knew music existed. Then you hit 25 and you must, what, what? there's like shops full of this stuff. You know, like there's a hundred years of pop music that I have no idea about. And there's, you know, and I can research it all. And as an adult, discover an art form I know nothing about. It was a bit like that. I mean, I was raised Catholic and you're always very aware that people who kind of convert to Catholicism are different creatures of people who are kind of raised in a religion. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that with comics as I'm a late convert who came in hard. So, so I read that your, your career already began in journalism. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, like journalism is probably a, a tricky word to describe it. But yeah, I was, <laughs> I was mainly, I was a culture journalist. I wrote about anything. I was sort of find it as I wrote about anything which wasn't important. I mean, I was like, I did, I did things which are broadly under the remit of journalism. And I was a working critic and I was a reviewer and all that kind of area. I like worked for my day job was a PC gamer for like five years. I launched a website called Rock Paper Shotgun afterwards, which is still going today. And I caused all manner of trouble in that thing. I also like wrote about music and anything, you know, I, if you name a place about video games, especially I've probably written for it back in the day. So did you attend college for journalism or <laughs> did you get into it through, you know, submission of work? How, how did it all play out? No, I was sort of a, like a lot of people in the UK, I was autodidactical like i'm very much self-taught and that same as comics really in fact so autodidactical in that i only very recently discovered how to pronounce autodidactic it's that <laughs> level of like i've only ever read it in books and so especially like the british music press is so much as a it's working class and b is the idea of if you're if you're good enough you're good enough you're very much like it's a zine mm. culture it's by, by saying it's zine culture it also comes from punk rock as in the <laughs> idea that you know you're doing it with whatever tools you find and you're kind of like deliberately doing outside the academy not you know and i like i use a lot of academic ideas in my work and i've certainly got no problem with the academy but my approach is always it is coming from a place of pure expression (laughs) (laughs) so like if you look at the british music press they're quite often recruited for people who are writing their own fan scenes in the same way like the old like the punk rock scenes back in the day you got something to say you did it and you put it together and you photocopy it and get it out to people. That's where I came from. That's where I was doing like music scenes and video game zines to a lesser. My zine was basically mostly music with some video game stuff in and just doing it. And it's really like everyone in the music scene was part of a band. And this is so similar to comics for me. Because like the second I got into comics, I was a writing criticism and journalism about it, but I was also writing comics. For me, like the the art of writing about an art form, as in you know, reviews or whatever, it's kind of part of my appreciation. In like doing it is part of my appreciation. So like I very much come from that place where it all comes from like a serious conversation with what what on earth is it? What on earth is it about this art form that's moving you? You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> you have caught me in an intense mood. <laughs> no, no worries. I, I appreciate uh, nothing wrong with intensity. One thing I find that's kind of interesting as someone who has reviewed and absolutely analyzed video games and, P- and uh, PC games, do you find that from a writing standpoint, what makes a good game is also similar to what makes a good comic book. There are transferable skills, but I think they are not very uh, similar. They're not similar mediums. I'm going to put some brackets there. There's some some areas the skills overlapping is interesting. You know, for example, both mediums really about putting a lot of meaning into a very small amount of space. Like my friends who, I mean, I've written a few bits of video game stuff, but in terms of my friends who've done like bigger stuff, it's about like, you know, you can't have, 
you can't write like you would a novel because it, you know, the sentences sprawl on, you know, you'd short sentences, you know, because you put them on the screen as subtitles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's that simple. And in the same way as a comic, you, you know, no more than 25 words in a balloon. That's a breakable rule, but it's a pretty solid rule. And so you're always writing for an idea that this is going to take visual space on a screen. Even like voice video games with voiceover, they still are thinking about subtitles. They're still thinking about how incredibly bored players are and they tend to click through stuff anyway. So they do short sentences that kind of could work atomically. You know what I mean? So there's definitely some yeah. transferable skills in there. And the the mediums have some similarities. I mean, they're both like bastard mediums. They're both about taking a lot of other forms and sticking together. In fact, you know, I think games are the only form which take from more places than comics do in real because you know comics all you know comics don't take anything from sound they don't take anything mm. from animation games are literally like the art form that eats all other art forms yeah like but at the same time there's all there's a cultural connection which i find interesting like you know they're both underdog mediums they're both mediums which people don't take too seriously outside the medium and that occasionally gives us a, a chip on the shoulder you know and i must admit i've always had an attraction to the underdog medium you can also apply that to pop music mm. as in pop music and I say pop music, I mean that in the way that British music press used to mean pop music, which means all music. Like, you know, Atari Teenage Riot is pop music. It was kind of the position my generation would take. You know, any, anything is anything is pop music. So all these kind of like pop music, games and comics, you know, the three art forms which I have basically based my adult life around are mediums which are occasionally get looked down. It's not like I really got to film more books because for me it's like, you know, as much as I love and read and like consume all that stuff a lot, why would I fight on the side of the winners? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, they don't need me, you know, I, I don't, you know, and I do like trolling my novelist friends and I'm sure, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure to us I will eventually write a novel and, you know, all, you know, I love all the forms in that way. But in terms of like the stuff that really makes you want to, you know, stick my you know, heels in and fight for it, it's always the kid in the corner, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing is that you, you mentioned that they're not taken seriously. I feel like video games, uh, PC, especially PC games, and also comic books are at the cusp of being taken seriously, finally. Like, at the same moment, I feel like both are being, being to get viewed with a more critical eye as being actual forms of entertainment and art instead of, you know, as, as instead of a, uh, you know, a child's entertainment. I think so. I think the... I think... <laughs> I mean, I used to like one of my, when I used to be an angry young critic. Like, I'm a lot mellower now. One of my standard lines was people ask, when will video games be taken seriously as an art form? And my answer was, when all the old people die. <laughs> you know, like, because right, this, right. you know, this is a, if you actually go, okay, this is absolutely me as peak me. But like, if you go and read like uh, Poetics, you've got Aristotle basically discussing uh, people looking down on uh, the people who wrote epic verse looking down on tragedy. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, tragedy is a lesser form because it uses like musicians and, it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he's arguing intensely, no, it's a better form. And, you know, this is, at the whole point, it made me realize, oh yeah, the, the new is always judged by the standards of the old. This was true mm. for Aristotle, it's true for us. <laughs> you know, you know, and it's, one of my old games journalist friends, Dave Taurus, he, you know, Michelangelo was just an interior decorator until a certain critic recontextualized what the Renaissance painters were. You know what I mean? Yeah. The conversation around this stuff is always developing. So yeah, we, I think we they were at a tipping stage. I think it's one of those, it's a cultural tension, I think. Like, I think that, I think we're at a place where Oh, it's just tricky to say because I'm not like I'm not as deep into video game journalism anymore. Like most of my gaming I do now is either like uh, pen and paper. Like I can play a lot of role playing games. Mm. I play very few video games at the moment just because my interest is elsewhere. That's why I've all, I've always sort of seen it as games rather than 
games as the medium, not video games. Right, right. You know, that, that's the way I see it now. It was definitely a time I saw it differently, but now I've kind of taken a much more philosophical and universal view of what we describe as Luddic, the Luddic elements, I guess. Mm. I don't know. One of the lines I used to say is, people always want people to take video games seriously until someone does. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you start like, you know, you see nothing gets like gamers' backs up as much as someone saying this is wrong. <laughs> you know? And that's what taking seriously means. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's funny because I agree with you 100%. I think sort of it reminds me a little bit of comic books where I remember growing up as a comic book fan and I've been a comic book fan since, you know, maybe 10 years old. So it's going back almost 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about myself, you know, I wish people, these would be more popular. I really wish people would, you know, culture would accept these. And now that this, the, the wider culture has accepted comic books, I'm hearing comic book fans going, son of a bitch, you know, main, you know, mainstream culture is in, interfering with my comic books, stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's like no one's ever happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be really careful what we wish for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what am I, I said this in with Die, actually. Like, Die is a comic about role-playing games. And it's specifically, yeah. it's a, it's specifically about role-playing games. It is about games in a broader sense. And one of the sort of things about Die is it's flirting with the satanic panic, which is like, for the younger listeners, in the 80s, there was a genuine pushback against like heavy metal and role-playing games. And it was a very real cultural thing. It was like book-burning. It was A lot of people were genuinely... Uh, the word persecuted is always loaded, but it was genuinely quite loaded. And it's like a primal fear for a certain generation of, of gamers. Except the thing is, we won. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and die like, is is and at, at the time, I absolutely was fighting gaming's corner, no matter what, because the people, because the people on the other side were clearly censorous and like all manner of like in bad faith, and I had to defend it. Whilst now, when gaming is so much more developed and secure, we can actually critique it a bit better. You know what I mean? We can say yeah. actually this bit's a bit dodgy, but this bit's interesting. And why did we do that? What was you know? We can actually as grown-ups have conversations about art or the art we love in a more mature way because we no longer have the pressure from the outside as much right, right. Um, and that's kind of what die is about die is absolutely a love song to me you know about everything i love about gaming but it's dark as all hell you know yeah it's the, and of course it also uses the satanic you know it basically takes the idea maybe the satanic panic was right maybe it's a demonic <laughs> machine that's trying to predate on us let's play right, with right. that you know let's <laughs> play with that idea you know it's like it's literally the most it was the forbidden fruit, and I'm just saying, yeah, let's 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 pretend it's real. I just because it, we can now; it's not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I will say that the pandemic has been really good for games, <laughs> board, especially uh, role playing games and stuff like that. Because I'm seeing more people talk about like D and D than any time in my entire life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely like there was a D and D. I didn't. People always ask me like, did I plan die to hit the D and D wave? And I'm like, hey, I wish I was that. A, organised, B, cynical. <laughs> but it, it was just like, it very much is the zeitgeist. And in terms of like stuff you can do during a lockdown, that which works, like that's, that is it. You know, like RPGs work really well. It's like social, you know, it's social interaction. There's things you do on like Zoom. It works very well, you know, and it's like, it just fit the rhythm really well. And of course, I, you know, I like board games as well, but board games have had a hard time in lockdown. Yes, you can do board game simulator and lots of stuff like that. But like, a lot of the, the joy of a board game is the physicality. <laughs> and like I, I, all my real hardcore board game friends are really jonesing for like the touch of like the touch of wooden pieces, <laughs> you know, but it's been really a good year. For, I mean, like even like before that, my, my partner, my wife, she, I regularly get asked, can you run a game for us? Like I've never run a role playing game. I'm interested in trying it. So I'm like offered up to RPG curious people. And you know, that's been <laughs> especially true this, you know, the last year and a half. Yeah. I, I will say I've, I have never played Dungeons and Dragons, and for the life of me, as someone who seems, I think, on paper to be perfect for a game like that, I've never played it. I always been fast, 
been curious about how I've never managed to do so. And the game itself just seems incredibly popular now than I've than ever before. It's 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 easy that it's definitely easier. And it's something like the I think one of the interesting things is that it, it's been demystified a lot. Like there's been enough TV shows which have had an RPG riff that you know, as opposed to like in the eighties, you've got those dice out. They look generally demonic. It's like <laughs> You know, if you look at them, you think, what on earth is that weird eight-sided object or the 20-sided, you know, they look yeah. genuinely weird. And whilst now they've got that removed, they're just pop cultural icons. And, like, you know, you've watched, you may have watched a community episode when they play D&D. You at least vaguely know what it is. Like, oh, yeah, you just sort of say what you're going to do, then the person says back and, you know? So it's a lot easy to get into. And, like, yeah, and, you know, that, the, the weird jump there. I was like, you know, I, I would mm. recommend giving it a shot. Like, it doesn't even have to be D&D. Like quite a lot of, if I was sitting down and running a game for like you right now, I would, you know, almost certainly not use D&D because you can actually introduce the core of it yeah. like, much easier. I did, I was in the pub with a bunch of comic creators a couple of years ago and it, I was just about to get, catch my uh, taxi to a plane because I was flying out of Ireland. And one of them leaned up and said, Kieran, you like RPGs. Can you explain what an RPG is to me, really? <laughs> and I just... And I just write, okay, it's this. And I just made up a game on the spot. And it's like, everyone get out coins out your pocket. Put your coins on the table. I'm going to describe something. So, you know, you are all like adventures in a pub. I'm going to describe something. You tell me what you do. Anytime you want to change the narrative, push one of your coins across the table. And we did, you know, in other words, we just started, I, I described a dragon attack in this pub. And then the players are quite timid to begin with. Then one of them, I think it was Devla, Devla Kelly, the amazing colorist. She said, she pushes, I push the coin across the table and goes, I jump out the window and killed a dragon. And I go, right? And then describe that happening. And everyone around the table, it sort of clicks. In other words, this is a game about narrative and mechanics. The mechanics allow you to twist the, you know, the mechanics are how the narrative is influenced the way outside your hands or in your control. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so like, it's a very, that's all an RPG is. It's the mechanics plus narrative and how the two interact. And everything else is just like how you choose to do it. It's not the core of it. The core is really easy. Yeah, you know, I think my first exposure to D and D, believe it or not, is probably watching the Big Bang Theory episodes when when it gets introduced to it, and it realized that a show like that, where I know it has a lot of detractors, I really do think it brought geek into um, the wider culture. I, I mean, like it demystified. You know, I think the word demystification is that kind of like stuff that people haven't seen and don't have no idea about. Like it's just automatically, you know, it was weird and it scared some people off. And even any things that allows people to orientate themselves to a culture is at least kind of sort of useful. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like no one's going to get scared when they get out of D20 now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're also the founder of a gaming website called Rock Paper Shotgun. Is that correct? Are you still active with it? I'm not. No, I, I co-founded it uh, with three of my friends. And I, we, I left in 2010. And I we and we sold it to uh, someone else a few years later. And I think all the people it still exists. But many of the st- I'm not sure. I'm not sure the number of staff who are still working. But at least some of the staff who were like working when I was still owning it are are still there. And it, you know it continues. It's alright. It's generally nice to have ta- built something from scratch and now see that X number of people are having a, a wage to do a job just due to something we built. And you know the great thing is half of them have no idea who I am, which is. Ex- <laughs> Which is exactly how it should be. You know what I mean? Like, I am literally a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do you monitor it at all? For, and how do you feel about how the site has progressed? Like, I don't monitor it. As I said, like, I've not been deep into video game culture for a while. Like, trust, I hadn't played a major game seriously for, like, five or six years. I mean, I played, like, a few hours of bits and pieces. But I just sort of fell out of um, love with video games. I just, it just didn't fit my life anymore. 
but it's partially because of how busy my life is and partially because the video games I like are so jealous. You know what I mean? They're like, they don't let give me time for anyone else around me. Gotcha. Like, so if I sat down and played, I don't know, Numenera, like I, I was a big RPG sort of, that's an example, you know, big, long, intensive, immersive experiences. You know, my, my wife would divorce me. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't got time for those games. Right, right. Uh, but, but just before Christmas, I got into Hades. I started playing Hades again, again, for the first time. And I've actually properly gave Hades a run. And I'm still playing it now. I might play it later, depending on how stuff happens. So it was... My, my following it is a bit more surface. So I, I pop in occasionally, I read occasional articles, you know, there's that kind of level. I think there's good, you know, it's really interesting to see how the culture has changed, how there's games I don't have any idea about, you know what I mean? Mm. And the stuff, there's a lot of stuff I just recognise. Like I played Hades and it was both interesting and familiar, you know, as in like, oh yeah, this is what the people who did Bastion did yeah. down the line. When, uh, well, as as someone who played games well, and obviously as a, someone who uh, was a reviewer of the games, and you, I assume you look at games a little more critically than someone like I would watch. I mean, do you find yourself able to play the game without being critical of the game? Oh, no, I'm, anytime I play, in fact, of course, actually, it's, I'm worth knowing. I say that I don't really follow the site closely. I still, I'm still very friendly with a lot of writers. If I'm out in town in, in London, I might, I'll completely meet up with some games journalists and talk about it. And I'll be like the old man, the old <laughs> man in the cave who I tell them about what it used to be like in the, in the Stone Age. But in terms of, yeah, I... But my brain, I cannot really just watch art passively. Mm. Like, whatever is in my brain, I'm always taking it apart. And in other words, any art I like, I will always be seeing how it works. Or why does it... Not only how it works, but why is it working on me? So, yeah, if I'm playing a game, especially after, like... You know, I was a game journalist for, like, 15 years, really. I, I, did, I did my first paid work when I was 18, 19. Like I basically paid my way through my second year at university writing about video games, which was, you know, interesting. I'll always be thinking if I was still working, what would I write about it? You know what I mean? It's that kind of, what do I think is interesting? Why do I think this is successful? How does these, these things, systems interact? You know what I mean? So I'm always sort of like, I know what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, not that I, you know, I'm very glad I'm not in the hot take machine anymore, but I definitely know what my hot take would be (laughs) about most things. Now, is that the same as when you read combos? Can you not read a combo and not view it as a critic? It's, or can you be a, just a fan of some comics? I mean, like, I don't think being a fan removes me being a... Like, critic is just how I think, you know what I mean? I'm a mm. deconstructionist. I'm like, how does it work? Like, I don't often completely lose myself in something. Or if I lose myself for a moment, I then I always step back and go, okay, what was that? Mm. Like there's a kind of, and I don't think that's, and it's in, I, I don't think the, because if anyone's seen me dance, I'm somebody who appears to be completely lost in music. Like I, I'm a weird dancer. Yeah. Uh, or weird. I'm an energetic dancer, but you like, I am completely listening to tiny bits of the music. Like, and that's one of my favorite bits of criticism is, and oh, like three minutes of this, this record, there's like a, there's like a double beat or something or that, you know, that, that's fine texture. And the idea of paying attention and really breaking something apart makes you notice more and noticing more is actually not like, a thing that distracts you it makes you actually there's more sources of pleasure it's like the more you look at something and the more fractally beautiful it is like mm. the more you're appreciating it so like the idea that you're just just letting it hit you is the only way to feel true pleasure but this part of the point of being a critic for me is finding ways to love something more it's not just seeing mm. what's wrong with it it's one of those bits where in the same way games is a really bad word to describe what games are you know because it's like comics is a bad word for comics because comics implies it's funny <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. and it, comics don't have to be funny. It's just how the word came from. In the same way, like when people naively think about criticism, and that naive is a loaded word, please forgive me. But like criticism, they always think criticism means bad. 
And criticism isn't. Criticism is a discussion around the work. And criticism can we really talk about how amazing it is and why it is amazing. It's the why. You know, anyway, that's a, a long... Did you ever watch the TV show Heroes? I never watched Heroes. It was like, oh, that, yeah. was, that was mid-noughties. That was the time I was still do- going clubbing more. <laughs> the, 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 the reason I'm thinking about this, a character, the villain on it is called uh, Siler. And he's a former watchmaker. So his thing is to learn how people operate, how, how things work. And from talking to you, I kind of feel like you're sort of like a watchmaker that whatever you look at, you find, you try to figure out the parts that are making it tick and you're analyzing for how it's functioning. Yeah. I mean, like... like I think that's a fair. I mean, actually, I think it's actually I was on stage with Hickman at a panel once, and Hickman thought I was a watchmaker in that kind <laughs> of like, I, I'm somebody who knows something intensely. I'm a bit, you know, I'm, I do bits of actual pen and paper game design now for my own self. And part of me is actually thinking is one of the reasons why I'm doing game design now is because it's almost like it's not enough to actually just be able to write the story. I need to, need to write a document that allows me to explain to other people how to write the story. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm writing a game which is like like the die RPG, the die RPG is really about here is how to create a die story at home with your own characters and stuff, but this is the structure you can use to get a similar effect to the comic. In other words, I understand this well enough to explain to you how I did it. It's like, <laughs> like and that's, and there's a lot of other like little t- tiny games I've been doing, and they're kind of based on the same idea as in how can I get, how can I get the essence? How can I get the platonic form behind the actual singular thing. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. there's, de- there's definitely something in me which is driven like that, for better and worse. <laughs> <laughs> so so what are you reading right now? Oh, oh. man, oh, I, I always hate that question. My brain immediately closes up. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, I Actually, I'm just finishing off Philadelphia. I was, in okay. a, I was on a panel, all the image crisis, so I, I hadn't read Philadelphia yet. So I was going through that, and it's a really interesting, like, I mean, the mood's great. The horror mode is great. Its mythology is really interesting in terms of how it's doing vampires. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read it. Oh. The art's got a real, like, this, this certain vibe to it. But also, like, as a medium, it's... I've actually completely forgot the writer's name. Oh, that's annoying. Oh, Ronnie Barnes. Ronnie Barnes, thank you. Like, it, obviously, it's mainly a TV writer. And seeing somebody... But he doesn't approach it like a TV writer writes comics. He's approaching it as a really interesting... Like, he is using multiple... Especially the first issue, he is using multiple point of view caption characters and people don't do that very often people often just choose one person to be the point of view and it's more like using uh, thought bubbles like sorry he's using captions like thought bubbles but he's using it also in a kind of like i, I, I used to i was once to use the word poetic and i don't think it's quite right but he's using these kind of uh, stanzas like the idea that these these little when he's doing the, the tight focus on someone's internal thoughts he's using this as a set piece and that's a very comics way of approaching the page and it's really mm. interesting to see it, especially because it's people have backed away from that uh, and it got me thinking about, like, why don't you do that, Kieran? Um, it's like, actually, abstractly, this is meant to be Eternals interview. I'm going to mention Eternals here. Like, part of me was, with Eternals, I was thinking, I really want to do a third-person narrator, you know, like old comics, the idea that I want an actual outside-the-story narrator who can be really overblown and, like, give some context and try to make it feel dramatic and big. But mm. that is such um, A, the only comic that does that really is occasionally Ford does it, or, like, Conan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and if I do it, if I did it like that, it's going to make it feel like four. Uh, I can't pronounce my THs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So in the same way, so I thought, okay, I want to do this, but I, can't, I don't want to make, I also want to make Eternals feel like nothing else Marvel is doing. And then I found myself thinking, well, I could make, how about make it a character narrator? One character is always narrating, which is like a device, which I quite like. Enigma does that, which is one of my favorite Vertigo comics. Mm. Uh, but and I'm like, well, who in the story could be? And I got the idea. Okay, the planet Earth is narrating it. 
<laughs> that immediately made me laugh. A made me laugh. B yeah. thought, oh, that's fun, especially because the planet Earth is going increasingly berserk in the story. So you get the kind of like how from two thousand and one narration aspect. <laughs> in that, you know, you've got somebody who's trying to be portentous and very serious, but at the same time, occasionally just breaks down, and that allows me to play with tone. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a really interesting way to make it. And sorry to loop that back around. That's what I get when reading Philadelphia in terms of like somebody's thought, okay, how can I use these captions to make it have its own feel? And that's kind of like, this is why I, that's why I came to comics really as an, oh, this, this medium does stuff that nothing else do, does. And by removing the elements and changing the elements and choosing which ones to use, you can create really interesting aesthetic effects. So yeah, that Philadelphia is great. Also, I just read Stray Dogs. Have you read Stray Dogs? I'm not, I've not read Stray Dogs. I have read Philadelphia. We've actually had Ronnie Barnes and Jason Alexander on the show. Like, one thing was like, sorry, I apologize. Okay, no, I say they're, they're really cool. I have not read Stray Dogs yet. So this is the panel where I think it's the WonderCon. It's like the image writers panel. And every, that whole panel gave me so much life. It was just like, really, there's so many really like great books. I've got, in fact, At the Campy was on the panel and I just read her book, Dracula Motherfucker. That, that'll be leaked out. <laughs> uh, uh, with Erica. And just such a wonderful, like beautiful piece of like uh, feminist 70s exploitation pop. And it's just really interesting and, a gr- and, and brutal. Oh yeah, Stray Dogs. Stray Dogs is... Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically a sort of cross between 101 Dalmatians and, you know, criminal. <laughs> In the, it looks like a cute dog comic. And, you know, these are cute dogs and they sort of speak to each other. They can't speak to people. But it's also like a crime story that they've, it's not really spoiling anything, but we're, you know, we, we get suspicion these dogs might have all been collected by a serial killer who've killed their owners. And, and But it's also got really realistic dog psychology. Okay, it's got a take on realistic dog psychology. So the dogs don't, you know they speak like humans to each other but they, they just think differently and it's things like dogs you know the way dogs memory works is different and they're writing that in so this is wonderful thing between oh that's a perspective i've never seen before it's got a really cute vibe but it's also really sinister and it's very funny but there's also that element of threat and it's got you know it's that kind of oh this is a, this is quote unquote a good idea you know what i mean it's not just like it's not like a one-line you know it's not just like the it's inspired i think that's what i mean and it's i can't imagine anyone like walking into the an off uh, you know an office at HBO and pitching that, <laughs> you know, and I love it. That, that's one of the things I, what I love about comics. It's very, it's a very, it's a relatively democratic art form. Like to do TV costs a lot of money, and and it's definitely probably the most democratic visual art form I think. So what? So to my inspiration, what inspired you to want to be part of the Eternals? Since you um, and, and that you brought that up, so let's discuss that one first. So, like, what was about Eternals that you thought to yourself? I want to be a part of this series. No, um, is this such a terrible answer? Marvel asked me. <laughs> it's like, I would have been away from work for Harlem. I've sort of not done work for Harlem for a while. Like I stopped doing, I left the Marvel universe like after Secret Wars because I was, I was just a bit burnt out. I, and I always try to get out when I, I realized, no, no, you're, it was definitely like after I started doing the Star Wars books as well and how much more fun I was having doing the Star Wars books made me realize, oh yeah, my attention is going here. I should get, step out, refresh myself. Mm. If I, you know, even if I don't want to, you know, if I come back or not, I always better get off the stage before it starts showing, I think. So I did a book called Peter Cannon over at Dynamite, which was a, my kind of exploration of, do I care about superhero comics? Spoilers, <laughs> the answer is yes. And they came to me and say, we want to do something with Eternals. We think you'll be interesting. And I stopped and I was like, yeah, I can see why you'd think that. You know what I mean? Like it was something yeah. like, oh, that's an interesting challenge. And it's one of the things I don't think about books I don't own until I'm asked to. You know, in a very real way, I don't own them. So it's a waste of my brain cycles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but when you ask me, I, I'll sit back and go, hmm, now I'm going to give it all my thoughts. And it was that kind of like, 
partially because you know it's an unfinished Kirby work, and it's re- you know I've never really danced with Kirby officially, and you know obviously Kirby's everywhere in the Marvel universe, but to really to work something closely with a Kirby is something which has never. You know, it's never quite been like the main stage of the Marvel Universe. It's like, can we find a way to like mm. really make the Eternals unique? Can we solve the problem of the Eternals? So that's interesting. Like, also, I've never done a book tie, you know, that's setting up a movie. You know, I've never done that kind of, like, okay, this is the book people pick up when they've seen the movie. I've never done that before. That's interesting. And I've, I've certainly never done something like rebuilding from scratch like this for like Marvel. So it's like, you know, so what really attracted me is an interesting challenge. Like, you know, like I, as a writer, I don't like repeating myself. I don't like doing stuff I've already done because I'm, I'm somebody who's always driven by interest. That's mm. what, you know, it's the thing that's driven me to comics. I think, oh, this is new. The idea of eternal, oh, this is new. Like I can apply all this stuff I've learned when doing books like Die and Wicked Divine and, and apply it to Marvel Universe and try to solve this uh, equa- this equation of the Eternals. To mix, to mix the Kirby metaphors, is it, I do feel like, you know, Dark Seed. I'm wrestling with my... My, my actual life equation, I guess, if I'm the anti-Darkseed. <laughs> well, I mean, the interesting thing with the Dark Eternals, uh, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the um, Eternals is that because of the movie, as you mentioned, the property itself is very high profile. But in, in, on another hand, though, the property is another thing that, with, as a comic book, unless you're a diehard Marvel fan, most of us have never heard of or know much about. And that's an interesting balance, right, there between a property that seems that everyone on one hand kind of knows about, but but on the other hand, seems like no one really kind of knows what it is does that make sense oh yeah yeah. i mean that's what it's an interesting challenge you know what i mean like i, I don't like making it easy for myself <laughs> <laughs> like it's true it's like they're sort of they're such great supporting actors and it's and the thing is a lot one of the problems with the eternals is some of their best ideas have been lifted from them you know what i mean like the celestials are part of the Eternals story but the celestials now belong to the marvel universe you know what right. i mean imagine if like dr octopus no longer belonged to spider-man yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's literally what's happened to the Eternals. Like they've been, and there's also the Eternals have the. I mean, my analysis. Okay, my analysis was a very long document. I hope no one ever reads, except possibly the people at Marvel. Like I had this enormous pitch, but I sort of I tried to analyze why problems I felt, and like one of the problems with the Eternals is, you know, they weren't written to be part of the Marvel universe. You know, they were like Kirby creating their own. You know, they explicitly the idea that they have their own sort of story, uh, they had their own sort of setting. Uh, and the idea is basically these are the creatures who are mistaken for the gods. And now when they merge the Eternals with the Marvel Universe, one of the problems is there's actually gods here. So you've got that tension, you know what I mean? Like, And it also it sort of downplays like the Eternals because, you know, if you have a choice between four and somebody who was once mistaken for four, you're going to want to read about four, surely. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and also there's a, so part of me was like thinking, how can I give the Eternals more of their own niche, more of their own vibe? And I end up like, realizing what the Eternals really are is the angels. You know, they are, they are beings, eternal, unchanging beings created by space gods and, and they're made to perpetually fight a species who are based on demons. And it's like, no, 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 they're not gods, they're angels, aren't they? So like, that's something, that's a niche, that Earth's guardian angels. That's an interesting way to think about them. And the other side was, and this is, since they were made outside the Marvel Universe, they do lack a little bit of that, the Peter Parker. You know, that, mm. you know how you know Peter Parker is the my powers are great but also bad, and all the great Marvels have this. The world is a problem, but I am also a problem. Yeah, you know that for me, that's the heart of the Marvel universe. I think that's why it's different from DC. Like DC, I think mainly are like the world is a problem. You know, about you know Batman is obviously messed up in many ways, yeah. but Batman is somebody who is shaped by a broken world and is trying to fix it. The world is the problem. Batman's fine. 
whilst Tony Stark is a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't mean that as a judgment thing. I just think that's a tonal thing. And the Eternals are kind of like, well, there's not really a downside to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and any downside that it's like living for a long time is the only one, but that's like a something the gods also have. So like, especially, and the more you go into the book and you'll see it, that the kind of, there's an underlying tragedy to the Eternals. And that's definitely where we're sort of heading. And I'm like, and you sort of see, I think if you read it as, I mean, it's a quite a quirky on the surface book in many ways, despite the Esad um, Ribic scale to it all. But at the same time, you, I think that you sort of sense the melancholy as well. You know, the idea of, What's the tagline? We, the tagline we use, you know, uh, never die, never win. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things that like you think about that line, the eternal battle against crime. You know, that's, you know, that, that's a scary line. That's Sisyphus. You know, that's, that's something people do when they're in hell. And so like sort of playing with uh, that sort of tension is something that really interests me. Oh, and of course the other side is I really wanted to take all these kind of eternal stuff. One of the lines I use in an interview is like turning, oh my God, I forgot the word. <laughs> no worries. Uh, the word is. I'm gonna. It's in what comics are the series? Co- so, definitely cut that bit. What I've said in a few interviews. One of the things is I'm trying to turn continuity into mythology. You know what I mean? So taking all mm. these events that have been in all these comics and thinking, imagine if they were planned. Imagine if they're like Tolkien wrote them. You know, and the idea that so all those are big events that are kind of in the Eternals history spread out. I'm turning him into a coherent mythology. And the idea, same with, you know, as coherent as the Divine Comedy or like uh, uh, Paradise Lost, you know, mm. that, that, those kind of like that weight to it and treating it with that level of seriousness. You know, and like the more you'll see, I mean, it's interesting, like the Eternals has got this very, it's quite a casual book in some ways. Like obviously Thanos is murdering people. So it's quite high stakes, but it's also quite confident as in, at least part of the appeal is that we have a lot planned out. Like I hope when people read it, they think, oh, right, what's that happening off panel? Who's this random thing? You know, as in there's so much stretching off the page that, oh yeah, maybe we'll get to it. We're, we're introducing you, you know, but right now we're dealing with this, but we're putting you into a world and that world has a level of solidity to it, I hope. Yeah, it, 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 I kind of think when in the idea of the Eternals, that the Eternals basically have two major difficulties for a writer. The mm. first one is making them identifiable to a reader so they can um, attach themselves to the characters, empathize. And the other concern is would be the fact that it's kind of insinuated oh i mean i, I know it's mentioned this in issue too so i i know you you saw it so we're gonna but have you discussed it but the idea that if they die they resurrect soon enough anyway so as a writer how do you take that and still create the narrative tension you want the reader to feel when reading it good question i'd imagine like i think my answer is going to be uh, when you read the arc to the end you'll go oh right as you think you'll think back to this conversation you'll go oh right i see what kieran was thinking but you are i mean like I think the classic way of doing it is put the putting the problem outside it. And it's a lot of the appeal in the in the Eternals is, especially early on, is the alienness. As in, I'm making them feel really weird. <laughs> you know, they're not humans, and that kind of gives you a wonderful fish out of water quality. That's one reason why, you know, uh, the Toby Robson subplot uh, involves like uh, Ic- you know Icarus going to Earth and dealing with humans and that that's always quite delightful you know it's, it's like you drop a weird robot in the middle of the room and it's cute but in fact that was very important for me because i really wanted to ground these other world beings and i also do stuff like there's the, the flashbacks when we talk 
humans through time. So, you, you know, that, that all those kind of timber. But I think by the end of the arc, it'll be very clear how I view that problem. And like, and it's very clear what my answer is. And I must admit, like, this is one of those kind of parallel things. I really admired what the ex-office have done in terms of like taking death off the table. Like, you know, especially the, more, the modern cynicism of like, oh yeah, you kill a hero, they're going to be back, aren't they? And so, you know, the ex-office has taken that entirely off the table, <laughs> you know, and they found different ways to make people worry, you know, and they said, okay, this, is, this isn't what our book's going to be about. And in some ways, like Eternal's a little bit like that, as in like power in a very completely different way, as in like, yeah, yeah, we've got Eternal beings, where's our tension? Yeah. And I kind of definitely view this first issue as a, a slow explanation of what Eternal's is. Like, it's obviously a plot as well, and it's a detective and a murder mystery. And, like, we set up the stuff really firmly in the first episode. You know, like, what the Eternals do. As you know, they're a, they're a species of Buffy the Vampire Slayers. That's a good way of putting it. And they've been around <laughs> on Earth. For, you know, that, that was my right, way. Right. Like, there's a species of vampires, a species of Buffy the Vampire Slayers, and they've been doing it forever. That's their job. And, you know, that's a that's a one-sentence description. It's quite easy, you know? And then from then on, it's all of the aspects. Like, issue... Issue two is was about the resurrection stuff and why that's gone wrong. Issue three is like the deviants. We get to go in the deviants. We get to see a bit more about how they interact. Issue four is about a bit more about Eternal's politics. You know, like as in there's a there's two cities and uh, what what is their problem with each other? Why are they fighting? What's the history there? You know what I mean? Like so, yeah. but also we're talking about the, their relationship with humanity all the way through. And you'll get to the end and like I just had in the sixth issue on Friday and it's like there is a I think there's, there is a beat I think it's going to hit like a hammer. Like, and it's one of those kind of like, people tend to think of my books as quite tragic. You know, like, I, th- I think I have a reputation for being quite merciless with my characters. And I don't think that reputation is undeserved. <laughs> uh, but like, honestly, like, there's a real sadness to them. And it's that kind of like, like, I think like, you t- there's definitely so much stuff I can't talk about or I, don't, or I don't want to talk about and there's stuff I would love to talk about down the line. But like, there's so much about the emotional effect is, I think it's kind of, imagine if you couldn't change. You know what I mean? This right. is one of, this sort of thing that haunted, I did a run on a book called Journey to Mystery about Loki. And it was about the horror of the idea of being Loki and wanting to be a better person but being trapped in being a villain. You know? Yeah. And, and Eternals in some ways approaching a similar sort of terrain in this kind of like, that's, I think the, you're, Hopefully, I will, hopefully people will get to like the characters, but then you'll sort of see their sad tragedy and you know their their flaws, and you know, and they're stuck with their flaws, and that and they're trying really hard to find a way to escape them, and that's I think is where the tension is: is you know, can these people, can these eternal beings become better people? I mean, you know, can they stop being eternal? Can they be more like people? Really, I guess. Mm. You know, and that's what we, that's what I, I really hope people wish for. You know, like you really want them to be happy, and that's what I hope the book ends up as. And like I said, and I, and I found the, the first two issues very interesting. And I think one interesting thing you as well is that Icarus being the perspective in which the audience is viewing the world that you've created. And Icarus is such an unusual character to be the audience surrogate. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because he, because I, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I'm laughing because I'm like, yes, he is. He's like, sorry, say what you're going to say. And I'll say, I'll see if I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> Well, because my, my point is, he's such. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe him. He's he's a very folk, as you describe him as an arrow. He's a, and if you want to also describe him as a very tunnel visioned machine, and yet he is the one which the audience is trying to experience an entire existence through. Mm. It's definitely like, it's definitely why I put him with Sprite. You know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. you know, in some ways, like Icarus is the model of a hero. You know what I mean? Like the classic, generally when we, 
most I think it's not a generalized, but a lot of cultures I do over here is that kind of straight, you know, straight acting, does the right thing. Yeah. You know, that that was Icarus is you know, and he's like the, the the core Kirby visual. That's you know, it's where Kirby chose to start with it. And if I, you know, especially because the story is about question, talking around the nature of eternal heroism, I felt they had to put Icarus at the start. And also, like he's so blunt, he's <laughs> uh, <laughs> useful. And also the fact that you know, uh, also I think you'll know by the end why it had to be Icarus at the heart of the story. But Sprite at the same time, Sprite being a bit more playful, a bit more human. You get a great straight man, you know, weirdo woman <laughs> dynamic between them. And also the fact that Sprite doesn't know, you know, Icarus knows stuff. Sprite doesn't know anything about the world she's in. So, like, you also get the kind of, I have no idea what shoe, you know, okay, she knows shoes. I have no idea what Netflix is. <laughs> like, tell me more about this Netflix. Uh, I, I would like to binge. You know what I mean? So, like, right, right. between the two of them, I think you get a naive perspective, which is useful. Like, Icarus is useful for the theme. And Icarus also allows you to show how Eternals are different. Whilst, whilst Sprite allows you to get a bit, bit more of the human side. Well, and, and, and through their perspective, we meet other Eternals. And I think definitely by issue three or four, like, Icarus is less central. You know, Icarus is the arrow into the world, <laughs> the, entry wo- the entry wound. And when you get in there, like Fina, okay, when the second Cersei gets on stage, you can tell that I really want to write Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the, the, the only reason I think Icarus, once again, is a very fascinating character to, to start off the series with. And once again, to experience the world through him. There's such a, maybe this might be the wrong word, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's such an obliviousness to his character ab- about it seems like it feels like those around him he wants he does the right things because he is that's what he does but his the actual interest he has in those he's doing it for seems minimal would that be correct like I don't think he's always very good at. I don't think he's always good at perspective. You know, what I mean, I think I said like I think I used the word clue. You know, the the machine says he's not. Sh- the machine says that it's not sure whether you know Icarus is clueless or not. You know, yeah. Like, and there is that. Like, is he is he very dry? Is he got is he got that very dry wit, or is he just being an idiot, <laughs> or is it both? <laughs> uh, you know, and I like and there's something quite appealing about that. I mean, someone tweeted about sorry, someone did a Tumblr asking me recently uh, saying how do you. As somebody, obviously, I like wordplay, I like funny characters. Is it difficult to write a character who is has no sense of humour? And like, the reality is, no. A character with no sense of humour is very funny to write. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they, they are the ultimate straight man. You know, they were, yeah. uh, and, and that's really fun. But yeah, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I like. I think it's. I think I, if it was just Icarus, it would be a problem. But the, between the two of them, you get an energy which I think hopefully will carry people through. I, I think that there's one moment in issue two, I believe, that has a, a wonderful juxtaposition between the humans and the Eternals. The one in which Icarus is asking the human to watch for the monster. Mm. And the guy um, is at least starts off as pretty much a kid, becomes an adult, an old man, uh, always waiting for the monster. And there's a big question, you know, when the descendants are like, you, he wasted his life waiting for this monster, blah, blah, blah. And Icarus is kind of like, yeah, <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah, just kind of, it's, I asked him to do it. You know, it, it doesn't, it is, it was an interesting juxtaposition between something that is mortal and fleeting and something that is, as Icarus would view, the, the big picture eternal. Yeah, it's complex, like, especially like, there's a line that Icarus says in there, and I think that's the only line where I think you, you capture it. Because I don't think he, I think Icarus definitely does look happy this happened, but it's like, you know, I spent my life hunting monsters, waiting for monsters too. As a, you know, it's not like Icarus has been doing anything useful in this time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, Good point. That's the kind of like, and that's the, that's the sadness I think there. And then of course I need, 
when he realizes no i was just wrong it was, it was the grandson not the grandfather like like i think icarus is genuinely like shocked you know like oh i, I messed up here and then he goes and kills the monster because that's what else does he do? Yeah, yeah. And like, it's definitely a story where Icarus has tried to done the right thing and like not done a perfect job of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, of course, that's that bodes ill for the current story when he's trying to, you know, the Toby Robson of it all. As in, oh, I'm, to, uh, you know, uh, I need to save Toby Robson because like, in the future I blame myself for his death. Like the question could like, okay, what you know, what's really going on here? So yeah, I, I kind of it's interesting in that way. I kind of like really interested in the psychological flaws. So actually, I'm doing a data page on in issue six where basically I do a, a model of the eternal psychology, as in literally like a computer diagram. Yeah. You know, as in this is how an internal brain works, and this is where they store their memories and how it's different and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's quite and like when you read that and apply that to different eternals, I think people will go, "Oh, that's intriguing. What does that mean?" Mm. Yeah. I mean, like. I think there's a lot of what, especially I did this with Die, I did this with Wicked, and I'm trying. This is the stuff I'm trying to bring back into Eternals is trying to make the ideas live outside the page. Like with Wicked, it's like every ninety years, twelve gods return to Earth, and they're all over the world in different places. So you can sort of say, "Oh, I wonder what it was like in the 13th century." You know, that kind of, and that is a, an inspiring idea. And even if we never come back to that, you maybe it's exciting, <laughs> and, a, and a bit like there's a lot of that with Eternals, like the idea of like all these kind of this is all fought out and it springs out in all directions. I mean, like, I'll say this, uh, have, have you read it? Have you given you issue three? I, I've only been able to read the first two issues. I was not given any preview issues of anything that hasn't uh, come no. out yet. Cool. I was like, issue, I so weird. like, obviously it's out next week and it's a deviant issue. And it's, you mentioned Icarus. There's a, there's a, some, lots of scenes where Icarus goes and speaks to T- Toby Robson's family. And it's everything you talk about there, everything we've been talking about, you'll think about when reading that in terms of the interaction and how much of an oblivious straight man he is how, and how much the parents clearly care. You know, and there's one panel where Icarus is t- talking to Toby Robson and he pretty much, uh, you know, I'm the Earth's Guardian's Angels, today I'm yours. And it looks, he looks incredibly sincere there in this panel. He also looks utterly petrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. And I think that that speaks a lot of, to your questions of Icarus. But the other thing in the issue is, obviously in the first issue, I I said there's 100 Eternals. That's, you know, and I've, I've named all 100 Eternals, basically. Uh, and that was kind of like, just to say, okay, this is, the, this is what they are. This is their social group. In the same way at the back of Game of Thrones, you've got a list of all the houses. These mm. are all the Eternals. And there's a bit in issue three where we... St- I give you a segment of all the deviants' names. And of course, there's a lot more deviants. Uh, but what I've done is I've programmed the deviant name generator. Like I, I sat and basically broke the, etern- the deviant names into phenomes. Uh, and then I used my limited programming skill in Game Maker to recombine them in different formations and give them titles. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, and you press, a, you know, you press a button. Like, this name generator generates eight hundred names, eight hundred unique names, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which then that like Clayton has turned into a design page. You know what I mean? And, and so anytime I'm gonna anytime I'm gonna invent a deviant name, I'm gonna use this generator. I'm kinda of, we're hoping we'll be able to get it online so people can actually use it to generate their own as well. <laughs> That's cool. That's really yeah, cool. It's, it's it's quite I mean, I, I gave it to I gave it to some friends at Marvel and they basically lost all, you know, lost days just pressing refresh and getting yeah. these loop because I've deliberately done it so like a lot of the names are quote unquote normal eternal names, but like one in five one in five is a title. And there's different ways titles can either be named before, name after, you know? And the t- when you start giving them titles, it starts being very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and the other thing I thought was really kind of interesting, and I don't know, and maybe also very ballsy, is that you're, the first villain is in the 
first at least the first couple of issues is Thanos. And Thanos is such a weighty villain. More means more so by his appearance in, you know, a Marvel you know, uh, uh, cinematic universe that it feels like every time you bring in Thanos into a, a storyline, you're dealing with massive level of scope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, please finish the question out. Like, yes, is the answer. It's that kind of like, and speaking briefly, like obviously, Thanos is this generation's Darth Vader. You know, he's uh, he's a definitive ge- villain of our times. So yeah, I feel like incredibly lucky to use him. And also, like, I'm interested in him because he's 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 in a bad place. The, like, the more we get into Thanos, as in, he's not in this this story. Is like, I think Thanos's character is right at the heart of it. And like, mm. as a kid, like one of the comics I did read as a teenager was the Infinity Gauntlet, and I love Thanos in that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and the element of like my image of Thanos. I've got a rant about this. That obviously, Thanos and Darkseid gets com- got compared a lot for obvious reasons, but they're, they're such different. Like for me, Darkseid is like math. He's about mathematics. It's about the idea of like cold equations crushing all freedom and reality. Mm. You know, that's that's what he is about. It's, Phanos is, you know, Phanos is for me the opposite. Phanos is like Lord Byron. He, you know, he's a literal, he's a poet. He's somebody yeah. who is tr- he's trying to romance the universe in blood. You know, yeah. like he, he burns red hot. You know, like he, he's completely controlled. He's very smart, but he, he's got, own, he's a creature of passion, awful, dreadful, nihilistic passion. And that's kind of like, and so in some ways, I'm not, this trust, I'm not saying my story is small scale or anything, but it's like, you know, it's very much like Thanos being shown in a more personal level, especially because this is a family story. These are family. These are Thanos's family, <laughs> you know, and he's never really met most of them. You know, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's never, he's never, he's never met his grandfather, you know, for example, and his grandfather is presently in a cell somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's all manner of good stuff there. You know what I mean? Like, so Whilst I'm absolutely enjoying the, the power and the personality and the passion of, of Thanos, I'm, I'm giving it a slightly different angle, I think, than we've that he's been recently as well. So, and I think the one interesting about having uh, Thanos as, also in the story is that this is like a rare such instance where in many ways the villain is far more recognizable than the heroes he's fighting. And because you're dealing with, once again, of someone like Thanos and and his the legacy of the character in the universe when you were conceiving or conceptualizing how to handle him in the storyline was there ever a threat that thanos was going to devour the rest of the storyline like yeah i mean like you can imagine that i think especially eternals like you're trying to give it a you know that kind of people are aware of eternals but they're kind of what are the eternals people don't know well linking making it very clear how they're linked to thanos is a very simple way to make people realize oh right these these are important you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there, there is that element of, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Thanos is a really useful foundation block as in that allows us to show, put Thanos, in, you know, I'm, I describe it as chronochrome mythology and the importance of Thanos to that mythology is kind of key. You know, if Thanos is kind of like, if we're talking Lord of the Rings, Thanos is like Sauron. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's not like, and as we all see, there's generations of evil going back. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we mentioned, I mentioned Uranus, Uranus, sorry, Uranus in passing, who's like the original eternal bad guy. And, you know, I have no idea when I'm going to get to him, but like the idea of like contextualizing Thanos is really appealing to me. So, yeah, I mean, look, and I said, like, and I think I said in the early answer, the family drama really appeals to me. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, put, you know, giving Thanos a little bit of context. And I think that that's additive. And, I, and it, for me, it was a kind of like, 
I'm trying to think, did I have any other... I think immediately I thought, Thanos, it's got to be Thanos. I don't think I ever really thought about an alternate... Not that he's the antagonist, you know, there's a, there is a traitor. <laughs> but, you know, I, I always was aware that I wanted Thanos as part of the plot for all those reasons I described. And it, it also... I find it interesting that in some way, Eternals and your other... And I know series you're writing called Once in Future deal with the idea of legacy. Hmm. And that sounds, and there seems to be a similarity between the, because both stories deal with not only what's happening in the present, but the repercussions of a history of these, of, in, of these interactions. And is that something that's just fascinating to you? Is, was that something that the idea when you're working through one helped inspire an idea of another? I think that's really interesting. Like, and if you working divine too, working divine is literally about something stretching back and like a sit, you know, working divine explicitly about a system which they an endless brutal system that is killing people. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> um, I guess it's like you know, you can look at die and see die as basically the effect of something twenty five years ago on people now, or twenty years ago rather. So there is definitely the idea of like history has always interested me. Why, you know, how have we got to where we are? Context, you know, how much we are the things that made us? Can we escape them? I mean, can we escape them has always been my theme. I mean, we talk about like, you know, legacy heroes. That's a standard superhero thing. And it always kind of like, you saw this, I think, in my Young Avengers run. But the, the legacy here is the idea that my dad was the Flash, so I will become the Flash. Or like, you know, I will take on this. Always weirded me out. But like, as a working class kid, I love my, you know, I love my parents, but but like the idea wasn't that I would become what my dad did, you know? The idea was to try to find your own way and, you know, ideally do a job which didn't involve me being outside all time and, you know, hurting my back and whatever, <laughs> you know? And I say that solely as somebody who has worked building sites. And my, my main experience of that was, I don't want to do this. I'm going to work really hard to avoid doing this. I'm <laughs> 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 being lucky enough for that work to pay off. So like, oh, I've, def- oh, I've gone down a weird hole here, haven't I? That's um, <laughs> okay. Fair, fair, fair enough. But legacy, you know, like, what are the effects of stuff? Because I, I think so much just come from interest in history. Like, you know, okay, like, why did World War One happen? And then, okay, it happened because of this. And then, well, why did that happen? And then why did that happen? And then why did that happen? And, like, there's never enough context. This is like, you know, Dan Harmon's hardcore history. He's always talking about he's addicted to context. And that's why he does these podcasts, which explain to, like, 400 hours or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, when he says that, I kind of recognise it. it. And I it, think in some ways... That that's you know that's what you're catching up, but also, I think it's got more so the more older I've got. Like you know, I'm 45 now. I, I'm I'm no longer a young person in any way, <laughs> but what I am, you know, the idea of giving something I've often actually this is something I've said and it bugs, and I find it quite hot. When I was young, it used to when old people say, "Oh, you, you'll get perspective," and when I was young, I took that to mean as I know better than you. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like yeah. that, that always obviously that gets you back up because it's annoying. But I sort of, I've got realised as when I get older, how I think about perspective is I have seen the world from different places at different times, and it does. And it means it's not that I'm more sure; it's more that I'm more, I'm more unsure because I'm aware of the different people I've been <laughs> and yeah. how I saw things in different places, and therefore I've seen different problems from different spaces. Therefore, I have a very different view of them now. So perspective, you know, so perspective isn't actually, you know, perspective is a question mark. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And I guess that question mark around legacy and like, okay. Have I done? Has my has my have I done my life well? I don't know. I mean, look, what are the effects? How are, how are things going to echo forward? You know, all those kind of things. I think that's definitely stuff that influences me. Because like, or, you know, 
I'm an atheist. I don't believe in an afterlife. Yeah. Uh, so like, I, I, this is it. This is all we've got. And like, have I used it well? Have I used it poorly? And that, you know, and I would, anytime I've listened to like my way, you know, that kind of regrets have had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, regrets have had a few, but then again, far too many to start talking about now. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I don't like, I mean, I regret the fact I, you know, didn't hold a door open for somebody or didn't say sorry when I stepped on their foot. Actually, I always say sorry when I step on their foot. But you know what I mean? Like, right, right. I am full of minor petty regrets. That, I guess. I just think like, you know, and the well, other theme, the other theme about my work, I think is I tend to write a lot about bad people or flawed people. Cause I, for me, it's like the concept of being good is very easy. We all know what being good is. And like, if we all decided to be good and actually did it, the, it would work fine, but we're not. <laughs> and yeah. you know i'm interested in how good people do bad things and how good people self-justify and what does you know and maybe there aren't good people you know maybe good is just something we do you know and, and, and in which case how can we be how can we be better people and how can we make help people be better around us and how can we help one another you know which is very hippie but like you know that's kind of behind a lot of my work it's kind of fun that you, that you mentioned the word rabbit hole because when you think about history history really is the ultimate rabbit hole isn't it mm especially so much we just don't know that's that's what most obsesses me like how little we know about about i mean i got i was i did a book about sparta called free uh, t-h-r-e-e uh and that was about me going a deep dive about how little we know about sparta you know i mean most we know about sparta is from the athenian histories in other words people who are at war with them but at the same time, the people who wrote histories about the Spartans are kind of like, you know, like, you know, like the Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels movies, like those yeah. kind of like London gangster vibe. It's a bit like the people writing about Sparta kind of like the Spartans, but like they liked how rough and tough they were. So it's a bit like the only the only documents we had about like London working class people were Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that's like Carthage, you know, the whole we know so little about Carthage. And like, I'm obsessed by the idea of this empire, this this um, this very uh, very multinational empire, this very trading led empire. Who also, I think, actually did human sacrifice. They're one of the very few people, sort of people. It's not a blood libel. We actually we have the corpses, and like, but they were literally, you know, were destroyed by Rome. Carthage must be destroyed to quote Cato, and they did. And like, we know so little about them. And they were like a really major power. They were like neck and neck with Rome in that in the Republic period, you know. And one of my friends is obsessed over the idea of. You know, civilization could have started several times. You know, humans' brains mm. have not changed for a million years. So, like, how many false starts did civilization happen? You know, how many, like, how many Atlantises are there out there which just didn't leave ruins? And that's interesting, too. Because you can sort of, even the history we do know, like, going back to 6,000 BC, 8,000 BC, there's there's more and more stuff. We, in fact, there's a, sorry, I just discovered a new history thing I'm obsessed by. <laughs> and, uh, I forgot the name of it, but there's basically, like, Eastern Europe sort of areas. And there's this, this culture about 6,000 years ago, and they basically burned down their villages every 80 years. And like, That's, what? And that, that, you know, and it appears to be regular enough that it d- doesn't seem to be natural. They lived in a place for 80 years, and they burnt it down and went somewhere else. That's weird. Okay, I immediately joked, oh, it's basically every 80 years is a particularly hot summer, then the predator comes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? Like, what? And I want to go down that hole, because like, who are they? They're interesting, you know, right. and we'll never know it all. There's like Minoan culture or a Christian. I, I can't pronounce that word, but like, they're like the culture who are near Rome. And they, they were much, as, as far as I understand, they were much more like egalitarian society. They had a much better, better position for women. They're very poly, I think we would actually call it now, really. 
And, and they are fed a very different philosophy. Now, imagine if they became, if they won the war against Rome, what does what does the rest of world history look like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just fascinating. And when, also when you're talking about how we view history, how we look at history, we're also looking at ideas similar to probably to also how we're viewing mythology, which is, we'll say the mythology is almost a collection of ideas that have changed and altered as the society and people have changed and altered. And it's extremely elaborate in, in their own way. And when you're writing something like once in future, you're dealing as well with a mythology that is extremely complex. It's told in multiple different forms. There's, I'm probably going to, you have Thomas Mallory's Lamar to the author. Mm. You have the once in future by once in future King by TH white. And there's a bunch of other versions of King Arthur as well. When you're thinking about once in future, what work did you choose to look at as being, I guess, canon maybe, or did you make a did you decide to pick and choose the parts you want? How did you create your own mythology? I'm like, I mean, my favorite thing about What's the Future is like that mess of like Arthur is the story. You know, it's like, an, oh, it's all true. And it's, you know, it, none of it, okay, it's all, you know, it's all true. They're all echo. There's all those Arthurs are simultaneously true. And therefore, you know, I can pick and choose. But at the same time, I can pick and choose deliberately. You know, like, because mm. it's really a story about how Arthur has been viewed at different times in our history. Like, you know, Arthur started out as a Briton king, by which we meet, should read, Welsh. In other words, and they're fighting off invaders, as in the Anglo-Saxons. You know, and for quite a long time, Arthur was like a Welsh rebel figure. You know, he was like, you know, he was, there was Arthurian stories were suppressed by the Normans because they were like basically revolutionary stories. They were about kicking out the invaders. And then at some point, you know, the, the French pick it up and the Germans pick it up. And it comes back to Arthur as an actual little, you know, they, they forget about the fact he was, you know, they, they, they move what the Britons mean over to the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans. And he's now actually a, a figure about you know, the United Kingdom, you know, and the idea of, so he's a patriotic figure for uniting the kingdom like that, you know, and it's, and then it, if you tr move through time, Arthur is used to support the stories of the time or talk about and that, and that's what the story's about. And it allows me to basically pick and choose and also show there is no original text at the bottom of this, or other, there is, you know, there, there's a gaping chasm and we, we throw our expectations and hopes and fears into it. And in some ways, like, I, I'm not a fan of comparing mythology or myth or folklore to superhero comics for because I tend to think it confuses us. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I can get the similarities, but if we say they're one for one, it, it negates the differences and the differences are very important. Mm. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, Arthur holds up much better than most because Arthur literally like is, it, and I also hate using the word fanfic for stuff that isn't, like in modern culture, but there's so much the fanfic urge in Arthur. Like, you know, when Parseval was written, is it Parseval? And like, he didn't finish it, the guy who wrote that. And then like multiple people wrote their own endings, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and all of them have their own different head, clearly head cannons. And of course these head cannons have become part of the, the, the history of Arthur and then people use them. And it's like, and that feels so much about how, and especially the fact that all the different Arthur speaks to the time they're in. That also, you know, you could say how Batman has been used in different periods. How 1960, you know, the 1960s, delightful camp Batman that spoke, uh, spoke to the period in a certain way. And the 1980s, Dark Knight Returns Batman speaks to that period, you know? And mm. the idea that these iconic characters can be warped and used to speak about the times. And that's, you know, and if you look at Arthur, the history of Arthur, you realise, oh, that's always been true. You know, that's always, we've kind of, use this myth in a certain way. And even if you, you know, and even if there is a real story at the bottom of it, we have no idea what it is. It, it, 
and King Arthur also kind of strikes me a little bit. I mean, I may be totally wrong on, on, on this, but King Arthur strikes me a little bit similar to Beowulf as far as the character exists probably originally in a pagan world and it was taken over by Christian writers and, and Christian, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Without a doubt, you're right. King Arthur, I think it's the same way where you have a character who probably would have had pagan origins who was kind of Christianized by the writers that come on later on. So he's kind of, is it was a bastardization of two completely separate cultural ideas that were used for a particular purpose. When you were thinking about King Arthur, are you approaching him in a similar concept that he is kind of usurped a little bit by the monotheistic religion later on? There's a conversation about that. And I think that, that that book is in the conversation. That's when we use the grail, but the of course, the grail originally in the myths wasn't Christian <laughs> in that way. Uh, mm. Like, you know, it comes from other stories and the, you know, uh, the word I can never pronounce synchronization. Uh, yes. That one. I, thank you. <laughs> but you know, how, how stuff move across myths and how stuff like that fascinates me. And the fact that, you know, the, the level, even in like, fairly faithful Arthurian, when I say faithful, as in Arthurian tellings we are familiar with, how much pagan stuff there is clearly in, you know, <laughs> and how much stuff it's just in the warp and the weft of it. And because that's that's the nature of how we tell our stories, you know, we, we take pits we like and we and they build and they add and stuff becomes, you know, that's the thing is when people say, oh, that's not true in Arthur. Of course, we, we, anyone who knows about Arthur knows you can't say that. But at the same time, in some ways you can. It's like the stuff that people believe about Arthur is true. I mean, it's like, you know, we'll, you know, for a while, Galahad was definitely the greatest knight. But now we'd probably say, like, Lancelot was the greatest knight, wasn't he? Mm. I mean, we know in, just because he's the best fighter, because we all know that. <laughs> 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 but in different times, it wasn't that that's true. In different stories, it was less true. I mean, Gawain is somebody, I, I mean, I, I don't do much of this in the story, but I, I'm starting to do with it. But, like, Gawain is somebody who has been used in lots of different ways. That's what I find most interesting about Gawain. As in, there was, mm. like, before Lancelot entered, Gawain was pretty much top dog. Like and he was he was used in a lot of ways and the late, I mean, top dog meant a different thing then as well though. <laughs> as in, what is a good knight then is not what we think of a good knight. Mm. Uh, but then Gawain, the fact you know other cats become more important. Lance, you know, Gawain has to start playing other roles in the story, and that means he has to become less perfect and more of a, a, a troubled character. And yeah, I find this stuff. You know that, and the great joy of what the future is very much how all those things which are a problem if you believe in the concept of canon, become the absolute point of the story. <laughs> and, I, and I don't like, there's some wonderful stuff. I say that, sorry, I shouldn't say that stuff about my own work. There's some stuff I'm so happy with in the fourth arc when we get there. And it's like, if the end of the first issue, I'll go, oh, right, I get it, Kieran. And I can't wait to get there. And like I said, I thought Once in Future, it, 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 it's such a well-written story. And I do like how you play with expectation, with our audience like expectation of these characters. Because once again, most of us have a very clear vision before we read the series of who these characters probably are. And I like how it, it feels like you take those and you flip them and, or, or at the very least dissect them and rearrange them in a very unique way. Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind. Like definitely the idea was like I, one of the fun little things in once the future is all stories are bad. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's just you know that's just the that's the basic all stories are parasites who want to use humans and so all stories are so no matter it's a good story or a bad story stories are just bad they can be used as weapons occasionally but really they are predators who want to eat you they are, they, they are the wolves in the woods so in other words like i was always going to have that kind of when i'm inventing stuff with dan i was always going to say okay how can we make this character petrifying 
<laughs> uh, so I like I don't write this, you know, I, I send Dan mainly ideas, you know what I mean? It's like these are things you could do. Like these are sort of the vibe. Like I've got this idea, maybe that's fun. And it like and especially when I see what he's likes drawing. Like like Lancelot, his Lancelot's amazing. And obviously Dan has done some amazing Power Rangers comics. So I just thought, let's make up and I wanted this Lancelot to be feel a little bit later because Lancelot is a later figure than Arthur. So I wanted to feel a bit more of a romantic era. So he's quite very sleek and very beautiful and a bit Power Rangery. That's the kind of vibe I wanted. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's also Lancelot of the, of the lake, Lancelot de la Luc. And he is, you know, he was raised in a lake. He's basically Namor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, let's actually make him out of water. You know, uh, so you've got, and you can actually see like fish swimming inside him and stuff. So you've got this basically water construct uh, Lancelot and that's just a weird idea. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of that as in, and, 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 I, I, we wanted the thrill, like, A, B, make them scary, B, how to deconstruct them, but C, like, when we reveal what a creature, you go, oh, that's cool. You know, as in, like, okay, what are they, you know, like, someone, okay, what are they do with your vein? You know, or what are we going to do with Mordred or someone like that, you know? Like, that's always the thing, as in, because that's the pop thrill. You know, that's the, that's the joy of using Arthur, as in, people are a bit familiar with it, and they maybe know enough of it to, to recognise a name. So when they turn up, they go, oh, that's interesting. Or, like, you know, there's that element to it. And, and I think the interesting with uh, Lancelot, once again, those who are familiar with Arthurian legends, when he appears, he's both presented, and I think he's one of the few characters that's really handled this way, presented as one of the ultimate heroes, but he's also the destroyer of Camelot in many ways. I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy to that character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tra- I mean, he's a, a gen- I've read this a few times. This is mainly me, actually reading Pendragon when I was a teenager, which is the, the classic of Greg Stafford RPG of like Arthurian myth. But like, I mean, it's quite hard to understand Lancelot now in some ways, because we don't have the same concept of like loving our bosses. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like me, me sleeping with my, me sleeping with my boss's like partner is not, <laughs> the, not the same. It's, it's unwise, but it's not the same problem is like the concept a knight has proper loyalty to his liege, but he is in love with his lady. And there's right. also in the in the romantic myths of this, it, the idea of a chaste love of somebody is is a thing to be. Yes, and it is okay to be in love with your your boss's wife. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, met, this metaphor is terrible, but you just don't act on it. That forlorn love, that forlorn hopeless love, is a, a thing. And the you know, and the Lancelot, the romantic, the core romantic is he has these two complete, impossible, unreconcilable desires. He wants he is the greatest knight, abstractly. And you know he's, he want, he has to serve Arthur, who is his best friend, and is also his his uh, god liege. But it's also this utter this utter love for this other person, who is also etc etc etc. And yeah. that's the kind of like that's a good you know that's I have to say Lancelot's a classic Marvel character, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> you know? Good point. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when when de- with de- when you're dealing with Lancelot in your story, is he someone who's aware of? his role of being in many ways, the cause of the fall of Camelot. I think one of the, it's tricky to talk about, but like how much the different characters know about who they are is interesting. Like one of my, well, I think, well, I think it's interesting. And it's one of the things that like, Arthur is not sure what's going on. You know, like an Arthur is quite often occasionally confused. He is, you know, and he feels a little bit lost. Uh, and at the same time, Merlin knows what seems to know more what's going on. And, Mo- and Merlin seems actively sad that Arthur doesn't remember bits, you know? And that, of course, is that's the story we're going to talk about. You know, obviously, we're going to reveal the truth of all of this. But the, uh, you know, I've said this, all the stories are evil, but or hostile to humanity anyway. 
but also that like the more we go in the more there's a sort of the sadness of the stories creeps in as in like what are they what are they re- are they just echoes are they you know are they just like words in the wind or are they just like reinvented themselves are they aware of what they're doing i mean yeah those, those are really interesting to me especially because you know there's definitely things that lancelot have I, I forget which issues come out, so I don't want to spoil anything. But there's things that Lancelot doesn't realise yet. You know, in the same way in the first arc, Arthur didn't realise that his queen had cheated on him with Lancelot. Or, or in this case, who the hell Lancelot even is? Because, <laughs> you know, he, you know, Lancelot's from a later period. Right, but, right, right. The, the question of, like, when each character knows something is different for each one in different times and depends on, like, and their existential journey is, is going to be different too. Yeah, and like I said, I, I'm really enjoying the series. One thing I, I think I find kind of interesting as well, and maybe, and I think it's one of the, the fun parts, is the character of Bridget McGuire. Thank you. I love, I love Bridget. Yeah, and, and I think what I, what I like, I think about Bridget is that it kind of gets you thinking. And for me, this I think has come up. I've read this in a few. There's been some memes on social media uh, about this concept, and I'm just gonna bring it up. The idea that we always assume, I think, as youth, that our grandparents. Or have always just been old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that 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 they, that some they were born at the age of like 65. They've always been sitting in like a rocking chair, knitting or whatever, and that's how you know them. You have that's how you have understood them. And I really like the idea that you're playing with that quite a bit with Bridget, and the idea that you're unfolding this very exciting back life to her. And I was wondering if that was something you were thinking about while writing it. How we perceive, I guess, our family legacy and who they were before that we knew who they were yeah i mean definitely it's that kind of especially because the flip is you know grandparents maybe don't want you to know true you know like, like that's that's you know over like and there's definitely tension is and bridget doesn't want duncan to know how bad she's been you know because you know don't she's duncan is somebody who so she really cherishes duncan's love <laughs> you <laughs> know and she's a she appeared you know bridget's not very good at expressing emotions i think <laughs> but like you know she's afraid of losing uh, Duncan is because Duncan's generally a sweetheart mm. um, and they're kind of the idea inspiration for the two characters came from basically me thinking about my gran actually or of one of my grands who was this uh, she was Irish she came over f- to work when she was 14 so like, she came over even younger than Bridget did and of course I'm like I'm the first kid from my school to go to university sorry the first kid from my family to go to university you know like so I we've got so she had a she had proper old school working class sort of immigrant background and I'm like that but probably first kid who's edged into the middle class, you know, a lot, you know, and I go to work when I was 14. I couldn't find my shoes when I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> so that gap, you know, she said the stories, you know, Grant, Grant told me a lot, but she certainly didn't tell me everything. And the stuff that I found out like after she went that she never told me about, you know, and that kind of, so there's definitely all those kind of thinking in there. At the same time, like, when you said the whole kind of, you'd never think about your grandparents as old. I mean, my brother was always, my birth grandfather, as in my, my dad's dad, died in the war. Like, and we always knew that. But like, and grand had like a photo of a guy on the, on the mantelpiece. And we, we all, me and my brother always thought it was granddad, you know, or granddad. Like we just, and we both assumed, I don't think we ever asked about it, we just assumed it. And then one weekend, almost at the same time, me and Mike both realised that can't be our, that can't be the guy. He would have been a young man when he died. He would have been like 21 or 22. That was an old guy. <laughs> Who, the hell was it? Who the hell was this person we think we thought of our granddad all our lives? You know what I mean? And it's exactly that. Like, mm. there's so much you don't know. So yeah, that's that kind of this, like, yeah. the, the stories you don't get to know is definitely, and also the, 
I, I, I was really interested in writing that dynamic because like part, you know I mentioned earlier that I like writing stuff I've never done before I was when I think about like a lot of people talk about characters and I don't really tend to think about characters as much what I think about is dynamics mm. as in like one of my favorite dy- characters of all like I like these two characters together because they reveal stuff about each other and that I kind of like you know grandson you know more privileged more privileged grandson who's had you know who has been put in a position by working class parents who had working class parents and the the, the, the grand there that dynamic that kind of like I'd never written before and I found that really like oh that'll be fun and it's something I, I you know I know to some degree um like I, I'm clearly not done because I don't go to the gym as much right but, uh, <laughs> you know uh, and he has hair you know and Bridget my, my grand does not know how to use a flamethrower <laughs> um, but at the same time you know that's an interesting dynamic for me to write i felt like you're always looking for so oh, and also something i had not seen in pop culture as much so you know uh, you, you know i kind of that's interesting what you said about the grandparents wanting us to see them in a certain way and it kind of just popped in my head the idea that i guess in a real way the grandkids are the first possible individual in their lives that they can that can look upon them with completely fresh eyes because as your children, you grow up with you as their parent, and you're going to grow up with them in a very specific way. Your grandkids, because you you have some distance to them, you get that love, and you get them to know you, but you can get them to know you in the way you want them to know you, which is very distinct from the parents. uh, There's a level of experience you have as well. I think it's one of of the things definitely in Bridget in the book is – like how did I make a how much of a mess did I make with Mary? You know, mm. like my, my daughter didn't turn out well. You know, and that's the kind of and whose fault's that then? You know, and that's you know, as you say, it's a, it's a, it's a you can step back, you can present yourself in different ways, and it's a cleaner start. I think you're I think you're right there. Yeah, and 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 I also like the character once again when to a character to look at Bridget once again is Duncan, and Duncan is sort of like when we're talking about Icarus, Duncan is the, the audience surrogate. He's the one we're going to view Bridget through the eyes of. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the fact he's a complete innocent and, you know, for reasons, as we know, he's he's been kept for innocent for specific reasons. But, like, that is obviously very useful. And, Dun- you know, Duncan's not an idiot. You know, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's just out of his depth most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it's honestly, my, my favorite dynamic is, I mean, Dan is such an amazing cartoonist, but like Duncan screaming, ah, or looking confused and Bridget not responding. That's my, that's my favorite. You know, we, we do that like once an issue, <laughs> but like, you know, Bridget not caring, Duncan panicking. That, that's good energy. <laughs> is, is Duncan, is Duncan worth what the legacy that he has to now fulfill? Your it's, opinion? A good, it's a good crash. I mean, like it's interesting. Like, Duncan is good. You know, the thing about Duncan is I think of all the characters I've ever created, he is one of the the purest, like, hero figures and unvarnished, as in, like, and there's some, I mean, he's, I don't know, the nice thing about Duncan, he, he's this very clearly quite physical guy. He plays rugby. He's physically competent. He's brave. But he doesn't have many, much toxic masculinity in him. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. Whatever you define that as, is, he's a pretty, you know, good model for like men trying to be in most ways. I mean, yeah. he, he's a little bit easily bullied, I think. You know, that's the thing. He needs to be, his independence is the thing that he needs to grow. And that in some ways is like the tension of what's the future. Like, you know, can Bridget and Duncan get to know each other before they're too late? You know, and, uh, how, how can, has the ways that Bridget's hurt Duncan, can Duncan forgive her? How, how can Duncan grow to like, you know, be able to do this without his ground? 
You know, these are the, despite, you know, if you strip away all the Arthur stuff, it's really a family drama. You know, that mm. kind of, this is, especially bringing Mary into it as well. These are like a family who've done a weird job and can they can they really truly know each other across generations? And of course, there's also flamethrowers. But um, <laughs> so, I, I keep on using flamethrowers. I haven't bought a flamethrower in yet. What is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think Duncan kind of brings up to, to my mind also a very interesting idea is that most, how almost every story tends to work out is that there's a, a character is introduced to a destiny they have to be a part of, and the character is always equal to that task. Mm. And I always kind of wonder what happens when the character is not equal to the task of the destiny that they're supposed to be involved with. And I do wonder when you when you look at Duncan, is you know, is he that guy? Is he the guy that he's supposed to be? It's it's definitely like it is one of the things that people actually, you know, Duncan's such a good guy, you know, and he's all these various problems. But at the same time, it's like Duncan has had, you know, if Duncan is not innocent, they would have all failed. You know, literally, a lot of the magic items Duncan's been using, he could only access because he is the person Bridget made him to be. As you know, mm. Bridget explicitly made him into an innocent because innocent people get to do this stuff. Like, okay. people like her don't. So in other words, no, Duncan is 100%, 100% the person needed to do the job he is presently doing. I think the, other, the question is almost the other way around. As in, what happens when Duncan starts becoming more like Bridget? Mm, that's interesting. Because then he stops being able to use Excalibur. He stops being able to do a lot of that kind of fun stuff, <laughs> you know, and he has to start being a different story. You know what I mean? Like all that, ten, you know, something Bridget has said multiple times is, you know, you know, you've still got hope. Hold on to that as long as you can. And of course, as long as you can is a very loaded sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I, I agree. It's like, it's tricky. Like, and also does Duncan want it? I think it's like one of the things I like about the third arc is we finally managed to get more about Mary and Rosen. Like I introduced Rose in a quite a light way early on. She was meant to be like more support, and that was desperately unfulfilling. It, it wasn't working. So I'm putting uh, Rose more towards centre stage is also really interesting because she's got a very different attitude to Duncan as well. And some, you know, in some ways, in terms of classic action hero, like Rose is more than Duncan. You know, like you know, she. At least more modern, modern action hero, she's uh, got it than Duncan. But it's interesting, you know, especially where it goes is interesting. That's the thing. It's like, I've got it plotted up to issue 30 at the moment. And like, I, I love where we take it there as it delineates the people quite interestingly, I think. So what, what kind of hints can you give our listeners to what is going to happen in the future? Or once issue, in the future? <laughs> well, <laughs> issue 18 is the biggest stage quo shift in the entire book. Like so far anyway. Like it's it's huge. It's like it hits that. And it's like oh right, everything is compl- every, this is really going to be different now. What what's going to happen next? And it's very exciting, you know. And then of course it comes. It's going to be we're having a, a gap between the arcs, so like like a two or three month gap, and then we're going to come back with issue nineteen, which is the fourth arc, which it, immediately as I mentioned earlier, at the end of that you go oh right, and that's something big as well. And it's fun, you know. It's like the, the funny thing about what's the future is like there's still so many big Arthurian characters I have not touched. You know, we waited issue 14 till um, Lancelot arrived. Guinevere has never showed up yet. <laughs> you know, there's right. no Morgred, there's no Mordana. Like, even forgetting the second, like, second, like, level characters, we've got weirdly so many of these big guns left. And I'm just, I'm not sure I'm going to use them. You know, that's one of the, the, the difference from Once the Future to most of my books, or oh, sorry, most of my creator own books is it doesn't have the firm end. You know, it's a bit mm. more like, they're like Bridget and Duncan are like iconic. What um, Robin D. Laws, who is a writer and a game designer, describes as iconic characters. As in, 
there's dramatic characters whose purpose is to fulfill a character route. And iconic characters are characters you come to to see them do the thing they do. <laughs> like, you know, is an iconic character. You come to a Poirot story to see him solve the bloody mystery. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, that, you know, all Batman, you, you come to a Batman story to see Batman do the Batman thing. You want to see him, you know, beat up criminals and stop crime and feel sad about his dad. Uh, <laughs> so that is cruel. Um, you know what I mean? Like, in some ways that like, you don't want them, you, obviously you want you know comics are about the illusion of change or at least sorry mainstream comics are about the illusion of change but like you someday you want batman to remain batman to do the batman thing you don't want batman to get over like fighting crime <laughs> you know if batman ever got proper therapy you know that's that would not be a good batman book but but most of my characters in my career own books are dramatic characters they're specifically designed that i'm telling a story this like laura in wick div is about somebody who goes through a journey and we reach the end of it and there could be no more wicked divine stories it's just, a, it's a close, it's a, that character's done. Whilst Bridget and Duncan are, you know, yes, I've got the, 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 the growing of the characters, but really it's about this dynamic between two people and something they do. Like you pick up the book, you want to see Bridget and Duncan, you know, go and kill a monster, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're, you know, they're iconic characters. So like, assuming I don't kill them off, you know, they, they could be plugged into another adventure and move on into that. So it's definitely like, I have, an, I have a sort of thing, I know where I'm ending it, you know, where I would end it, but I don't really think of it as an ending. It's more like, if I want to take a rest here, I can, and maybe I'll get to that and want to do some more. Well, like I said, I think Wilson Future is a great series. I'm really enjoying it. And I want to thank you so much, Mr. Ginlin, for talking with me. You're fantastic. Thank you. So honestly, it's been a delight. You tell my voice is going now. Like I speak very quickly anyway. <laughs> uh, so like, A, I'm sorry to your listeners, but B, it's been, you know, <laughs> It's so, so much fun I was having. Like, uh, I think we said we're going to be 45 minutes and we've done like nearly two hours. So, yeah, um, I, I, I know. The, but the reason I'm kind of, I don't want to kill you <laughs> and have to explain to your, to, to your fans what happened to, what happened to Karen Gill. Like, well, here's the deal. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, he can no longer speak in it. He's now basically going to start writing in humans and he's going to basically be method acting Black Bolt. That, that, uh, well, at least that would get me into the Wikipedia page. I'd be like, what? Uh, Karen Gillan has lost his voice due to an interview he had with Jeff on Spoiler Country. And I, uh, you know, I, I get, I'll get at least a little bit of fame that way. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Kieran Gillan murdered by podcast via Jeff Hass. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. This has been delightful. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And, oh, my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many, so many amazing people from the comic book world over at SpoilerVerse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridge of the Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And 
Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And even more.